Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to this week's episode of The Expanse, the um, ta- or the episode that we'll be discussing today with, along with uh, Chris, Tribs, and Perry is The Anomaly, which is season three of Enterprise, episode, I believe episode two. Um, so how have you guys' guys's weeks been? Mine hasn't been too bad. Well, I stay busy. <laughs> yeah, I said, like, like Perry, I stay busy too. So. I, I'm making it. Good, good. Everybody's staying safe yeah. and healthy, I hope. Indeed so. Uh, Las Vegas uh, just announced for their casinos, and most likely for the state, we will be going 100% uh, as it stands right now. In some casinos, the employees still do have to wear a mask, but that, I, I have a feeling, will fade away within the next couple of weeks. Uh, but we are at 100%, which only means with the Star Trek Las Vegas convention less than 90 days away, will be happening. Uh, and I, for one, can't wait for it. Definitely. Texas has been full open for a while now. Um, <laughs> Governor Abbott made that announcement, I believe, like, I think it was two months ago. Uh, met with a lot of criticism, a lot of backlash. But, you know, now that we've ramped up with vaccinations, I think people are pretty glad for it, you know. Um, there's been obviously a push to go back to work. I'm firmly in the camp of I never want to go back to work. I want to stay work from home. So I'm trying to do everything I can right now with my uh, with one of my jobs to show them that I am way more productive at home than I am in an office. So, you know, pray for me, guys. I'm I'm hoping that by the end of the year, they'll be like, yeah, you should just stay home. Yeah, work there. That's great. Yeah, that, that's one thing this pandemic has, has opened my eyes to, my, my desire to go back into a an office type setting so that way i can work from home if i have to yeah working from home has been a nice change of pace and uh i'm not not looking forward to going back into the office if that's the direction they want to head with it so (laughs) so if you guys are are listening if you're an enterprise fan make sure you give us a like and subscribe and uh tell all your friends If you enjoy listening to The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast, every week, then please consider supporting our show by becoming a patron. Visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nx01podcast. There you can view our subscription tiers. Some of the benefits of becoming a patron include early access to our episodes, bonus episodes, and so much more. Your support helps us continue to maintain and exceed the high level of quality that you have come to expect from the show. To all of our existing patrons, we appreciate you and your generosity so much. And to those of you considering joining us, we would be so thankful to welcome you into our group of patrons. Again, visit patreon.com slash nx01podcast for more details. You will also be able to find the website link in the details of this podcast episode. 
All right. So again, today we're discussing Anomaly, which is one of my all-time favorite episodes of Star Trek. It's very action-packed. Um, got a lot of got a lot of um, good character development, and uh, I, I love action-packed Star Trek episodes. And this this one had a lot of it in there. Um, so the episode starts out with the ship encountering, and, and of course, an uh, aptly titled Anomaly. What and it um, has a has a pretty strong effect, which you know we've never the CGI in Star Trek just gets better and better with each series, and so we were able to see some pretty cool things in and some pretty cool camera angles. I was looking at the cinematography, and it was really good as well. Um, there was a there's a an anomaly that was rolling through the deck and launched someone like a like it was a rolling ball or something. Um, so is, the episode starts out with Enterprise dropping out of warp, taking damage from this anomaly. Um, they find a ship in range near them, and it's it seems to be kind of adrift. So they decide to investigate. Of course, curiosity gets the better of these, these explorers that we are learning to know a little bit. And um, they decide to rendezvous with this ship where they find that the entire crew has been, uh, that the ship has been pillaged and all of the crew is dead. Um, and from that point, the the ship captain archer makes a decision hey we're gonna we're gonna get out of here <laughs> i don't like really what i'm seeing right now um so the, they start making repairs on the move um and you can tell that archer has a bad feeling you know he, he doesn't say it's not a han solo line or anything i got a bad feeling about <laughs> this but you could tell by his mannerisms and um his conversation with trip and engineering hey prioritize weapons prioritize hull plating let's get out of here you know, and then sure, sure enough, um, they encounter uh, a ship. It's a pirate ship, the Osarian vessel, and um, that ship raids raids them, which you know, very reminiscent of a of a particular Star Trek Voyager episode. I got those vibes a lot. Um, a couple couple interesting plot points, or a couple interesting behind the scenes points that we'll talk about here in a bit. Um, you know, regarding the gear that the Osarians used and things like that. But essentially, they they uh, pillage the enterprise. Enterprise. They take as much as they can, and and leave nothing. <laughs> spare spare <laughs> nothing. Um, take all of their antimatter um, storage pods, so that Enterprise is just running on what they have in the tank, basically and uh, leave them in a really bad situation so of course you know our intrepid captain archer he's not going to take this lying down um, he makes the decision that instead of just moving on from this they're going to track down that ship and in doing so they find um, what becomes a recurring plot line through the rest of the season they they encounter the spheres um, and they they start learning about um they start, you know, analyzing the sphere. They learn that it's all, it's made of one alloy and, uh, and constructed of a single alloy, the size of a moon and emitting intense gravitational waves and, and behind a cloaking field, a cloaking barrier. So it's not, you, it's not regularly detectable. Um, and then they find out that this is where the, those pirates have been staging their operations. This is where they go back to, um, you know, store what they've taken and, uh, Archer decides to recover as much of the gear as they can from the sphere and then set an ambush for the ship. And, and it was quite an ambush that they set for them. <laughs> very, very good space battle. Very good scene there. Um, 
at the end of the episode, they end up hacking into the Osarian ship and gaining intelligence about the Zindi, um, which they, they learned they'd been in contact with. And I guess I skipped over, um, you know, during that, during that raiding or boarding party, uh, they managed to capture one of the pirates and that's, that's how they learned, uh, the discovery of the, of the sphere and the cloaking field and whatnot. And, uh, we're able to gain some intelligence that way too. So very intense episode. Um, you see a darker side to the captain there. Um, and, and tell me, tell me a little bit about what you guys thought about it. Um, first thing I want to talk about is you, you said that we noticed a darker archer, um, I, I never viewed it as um, Archer being darker. I always viewed it as he um, was more in his own element, that he fully understood, he, I guess not saying fully, but yeah, he more understood the role of command. You know, we've seen this gradual change in him over the course of the seasons. And then, of course, with uh, the attack on Earth, it was a really polarizing moment for him, sure. But um, he becomes all about uh, protecting his crew and... Um, staying on mission as much as possible, and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing or a, as a or a dark thing. Like you talked about, you know, him having the you know the foresight. He's you know telling them prioritize weapons, prioritize the whole plating. You know, he's wanting those things because you know how many times in previous episodes had we seen them you know greet unknown scenarios with open arms only to be attacked or. Um, you know, something bad happened to somebody on the crew. So to see him, um, you know, kind of doing his best to guard against that, I really appreciated that. Um, I did also like the special effects in this one, the rolling uh, ship hull explosion ball or whatever it was. I thought that was a cool effect, um, something that we hadn't seen in Star Trek before. Um, the The lightning effect is a favorite of Star Trek. And we see that one across all of the treks, the, the, the lightning arcs that shoot out of the warp core when Trip is trying to shut it down when they first enter the anomaly field and everything. We see that one. That's like a, I guess that's a, both a fan favorite and a uh, creative effects artist mm-hmm. favorite because they use it seriously in every trek. And it's, it's almost like comforting to see. Cause it's like, ah, you know, I, I want to know that guy's name because I'm pretty sure he's worked on every single Trek <laughs> ever because he's got that same effect in there. Um, what else? I had wrote down a couple of things uh, as well. Um, you you called out that it was a call, like a lot of this is very similar to a Voyager episode. About the exact same thing on that too. Like I couldn't remember precisely the name if it was like Night or The Void or something like that, but this whole stuck in an area of space being set upon by pirates and having to, you know, re reclaim what was stolen. Uh, yeah, definitely, uh, stood out to me as well. So yeah, definitely a very enjoyable episode. I think for me, uh, if I may, I think for me, the episode, what Star Trek enterprise does, it is because Brandon Braga is part of this team. Brandon Braga is a big Outer Limits Twilight Zone fan, and we've seen this type of episodes throughout the series. And not knowing this, but I actually had to look it up, Mike Sussman, though he wrote it, Brandon Braga wrote half the script, though Mike Sussman gets the credit for it. But you can see elements of Brandon Braga with the anomaly, with the special effects. 
So I, I, I enjoyed that part of the episode. Now getting to the Archer point of it, you know, we see the tables turn in the episode Damage later on throughout the season. But Archer becomes more of, like Perry had said, more aware of what's going on. Archer knew the stakes going into the Expanse, but now it becomes a, okay, I didn't think it was going to happen this soon. Now we have to wait for it. And what the turning point is for Archer, being this is the character development episode for him, is the interview with the Osarian in the brig. This is where Archer becomes darker in Jordan's words, but a lot more aware and astute in Perry's words. And this is where we're going to take the turn to investigate the sphere. The sphere, although it is made of a highly durable, highly, you know, duritanium alloy, whatever it was, though the lock can be destroyed with a phaser fire to get in. So how simple, you know, how simple was it to get in? I, I get the plot had to move forward. Um, but that was the kind of the funny thing for me. That was an aftermarket door, my friend. That was not. <laughs> that, that had to have been, right? Well, if I, re- if I remember in the episode correctly, that door was actually installed Correct. by the pirates. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't originally created by the You're actual right. sphere builders. Right. So that's why they were able to get in, and then that's why it stood out because right. the Osir- the Osarians had installed it, not the other. Yeah, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't yeah. built by the same people. Right, but but uh, um, that's the one thing that stood out that was funny to me. You know, the pirates put in the door, and you know, as secure as this place was supposed to be, that they put it, they used it a cheap lock or aftermarket, as we put it. But I think really this was a character development episode for Archer, and a very big plot point as to the the workings of the spear and the zindi and what little we get to know of them just from the start of this episode i think the sphere is cool (laughs) i love i love looking at it i thought i thought that was so cool i love the inside um, I definitely had flashbacks to the dice so did i next that 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 was the point i was going to bring up too so I I just I I love that whole concept of the Dyson Sphere too. So like seeing seeing it like all of it, I was just like, man, where are they gonna go with this? I remember watching it the first time. I was like, are are we gonna find out like who created the Dyson that Sphere? Exactly like, is that where this is going? And, you know, ah man, it was just it was so yeah. I, I still find it cool. Like even when I think about it and watch it again, I'm like, man, y'all, y'all could have gone so many yeah. ways with this story of this circular object. But they went there. Yeah, they went know, their I, own. I love it. You know, which I which I respect. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have anything yeah. to do with the Dyson spheres, but they, the way that it actually played out, which I'm sure we'll discuss in future episodes, and the purpose of those spheres, that was fascinating to me. And so to see how it was introduced and how they slowly unraveled, like the intention and the creators of the of the sphere builders, I thought was fascinating. Well, it kind of brings that science fact in. You know, when we talk Voyager, you talk science because that's basically a science episode. Mm-hmm. And with Braga behind the mind, one of the minds behind Enterprise, bringing forth that science aspect, uh, it really does do a lot of justice to the reasoning behind the Zindi or the reasoning behind the gravitational poles 
and so on and so forth. So it gives that little bit of, of mystery yet, uh, you know, I can't think of the word at the moment, but it gives that little bit of mystery and that suspense. Right. Yeah. To what's happening. Hey, Chris, you've been quiet. What are your thoughts on this, yeah. man? <laughs> um, my, my initial thoughts when I first saw it, um, I was like, okay, th- things are actually starting to get real now since they're, they're on their little joy ride through, through the expanse. We'll call it. Um, definitely, definitely seemed like they were making Archer turn, turn, you know, from, from the hero to the anti-hero that would see, see, you know, a whole lot later on in, in filmmaking and production. Um, and you could definitely tell it was the, uh, the, the time of, of, cinematic production when pirates were in because you know i think at, th- at this point uh pirates of the caribbean had, had just been out so that that's what everybody was all about i got i got, got some pirates i agree of the caribbean vibe too definitely everybody loves pirates <laughs> i don't of course uh, of course <laughs> sorry sorry i just don't i don't i don't love i've, I've never loved him I, i'm not a fan of the pirates of the caribbean movie. i like johnny depp but i don't like those movies um yeah i could do uh, maybe they would be better to me if they had found someone to replace kira knightley but because i think she's <laughs> yeah awful. agreed but, although i i gotta say that was that was her best anyway so like I don't know if you've well, watched any of her other movies, you're, you're going to probably fall asleep. <laughs> so, so, so here, here we go. Let, let's replace Kira Knightley with Natalie Portman. How do you think pirates? Would <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'd watch it. I would watch it. Okay. I mean, cause, cause, yeah. Cause Kira was actually Natalie's uh, stunt double in star in Wars the original trilogy or not the original, the, the sequel trilogy, mm. the prequel trilogy. I heard that even so. their mothers couldn't tell them apart on set. I read that. <laughs> yeah. Wow, but um, I and I I thought the the pirate storyline was unique. You know, we we haven't seen a lot of pirates in Trek lore, so it was nice to be able to um, for them to dive into that a little bit. Um, and when I said that Archer, you know, became darker, um, what I let me elaborate on that a little bit. You know, I I do agree that he is becoming more astute and more aware. Um, I think that those aspects came earlier in the episode when he when he smarted up. He was like, "Hey, whatever did this to this ship? I want no part of that. This is my crew. Um, I, I I have a responsibility to make sure that they're safe. And so we're not going to stay here and make repairs. Um, we, you know, he doesn't he doesn't listen to his first officer on that. Um, there are many times throughout the series where he does, and many many times throughout various Star Trek series where the first officer's opinion is crucial. So to Paul, we see her doing her job. We see her render an opinion, but we see Archer make a judgment call because he doesn't have a good feeling about this. So specifically, you know, where he gets darker, um, you know, and imagine, you know, you know, the captain of a Navy ship or the captain of um, just an officer in today's military and, and he's torturing, you know, um, an Al Qaeda, a terrorist, somebody who we're at war with. Um, it's one thing to to hear about it, but it's another to actually see it. And I think we see that in Reed's reaction. Um, you know, his, his captain is supposed to represent the best ideals, the best of Starfleet. He's somebody that he looks up to. And we really see Reed like 
um, kind of shocked at, by, at what he's doing. You know, I bet if he were in the same position, he might yeah. make a similar call, especially as a, the militaristic man that we come to know him to be. But we really see him. And, and that, I think that says a lot about his character that he is so militaristic. But he's he's sitting here telling the captain, look, he's going to die if you don't let him out of there. Um, uh, I, I totally agree with you, but I don't think that I don't think that Reed was shocked um, at what Archer was doing. I always read it as he was just shocked that it was Archer <laughs> that did it. Because, like, well, because, like, he, you know, he's very critical of Archer on some things. And he talks about how he feels like Archer could deal with, you know, being a bit more of a of a sterner individual, sterner captain, you know. And, um, and even if you watch that scene, I can remember like, yeah, he's shocked when he walks up and he sees Archer doing what he's doing. But there's also a little like half smirk on his face. Like, like he's just like, okay, like he, we're getting answers. You know, he, Archer's getting answers and he, and he, and he stands by him. Like he ultimately supports the captain. Like he does not really get in the way, try to interfere. And like, we see other, other uh, officers on other shows when the captains tend to toe that line that eventually jump in, you know, like when, when mm -hmm. with Janeway and Chakotay, when Janeway felt like Chakotay, when when Chakotay felt like Janeway had crossed that line, he jumped in there and pulled that officer yeah. out of the cargo bay, you know. But but not here, you know. Reed stands by and he lets his captain do what he needs to do, you know. And it's also, I feel like it's a great Archer scene. It's a great Bacula scene. I love that part where he's like, Captain, if you don't let him out, he'll die. And he's like, Not for another twenty <laughs> yeah. seconds. He's like, You get him, you get yeah. him, give him that countdown. I think. <laughs> I, I think, think that, uh, sorry, Trips, I didn't mean to interrupt, but. No, no, go ahead. I, I, no, I just, ahead. I, I got to disagree with you, Perry. Like, I think that it rattled Archer. I think that what he did was shocking to himself and, and to Reed. Um, and, and there's a, there's a scene later in episode four where Silic, where he has a confrontation with Silic and he says, you've changed captain. And Archer says back to him and not at all for the better. And I think that this started at this particular scene. Um, this when when he said those words to Silic, I flashed back to this scene, um, and I was like, "Yeah." And that is that is where it started. It you know, no one wants to torture somebody, but he did what he had to do, um, what he thought he had to do in order to continue his mission, which I respect, and I do absolutely agree that you know Reed. He could have pushed back harder. Um, he's pushed back harder on other things. So to see him stand by his captain, you you know that he he had his support. But I think for both of them, like it rattled it rattled both of them and was a game changer for the character of Jonathan Archer. Okay, that's fair. I'm not gonna argue with you. <laughs> yeah, what what I was gonna say was I think one word would be uh, for this whole season would be survival. Now, Enterprise plays it because there are no rules and regulations. In contrast to Voyager, where Janeway was always sticking to the Starfleet regs and using, you know, a little bit of instinct, but always had the Starfleet regs in mind to because she was so far away from whatever it was. She still was born and bred Starfleet. There were no rules and regs in Enterprise, so... With this being said, Archer only knows the one way to deal with it, and that's through instinct. Yeah. And this scene, as and this in this particular torture scene, as uh, 
is horrifying, I guess, for lack of a better term, is it's what needed to be done. And I think going back, I think Archer knew he was turning the tide of himself and didn't want to do that. But the world, the the universe hangs in his balance. So he's got to do what's best for that, uh, for that particular, that particular set of, of instances. And I don't think he, he didn't want to turn into somebody he's not. But the the circumstances brought forth made him that way, if that makes any sense. I think he was willing to sacrifice himself in a way and sacrifice his morality very much the way that Cisco was um, in my favorite episode. You know, I, I, I think yeah. I've referenced that episode every single podcast that we've had. Um, you know, I but I think that he was willing to sacrifice his morality for the greater good. Not everyone is cut out to make that decision. And I found the parallels with um, what was going on in the world at the time. You know, the invasion of Iraq and um, waterboarding and things like that. Things that we've been talking about for decades since, um, you know, that that all started around that time. So for, for Star Trek to, again, be so on the point and so and hit the nail so well on the head with world events, um, both current and future, I, it was it was uh, rewarding to see on screen and the, the way that it unfolded in the narrative. And uh, speaking of character development, I, you know, the ship's every ship in every series to me is as much a character as any of the people that we see. And we see enterprise kick some ass in this episode. Um, enterprise has previously been, you know, a pretty vulnerable ship. We've seen it take some damage from some pretty lightweight enemies. Um, they didn't even leave space dog with phase cannons. I don't know if they were supposed to get installed on Tuesday or what the deal was with that, but um, you know, they <laughs> They had to eventually install them themselves. And even with those, you know, we see a Klingon, sh- a Klingon sh- ship um, in, in multiple engagements in earlier seasons. We see them get their asses kicked, essentially. Um, you know, they've got low yield particle cannons. They've got old school torpedo warheads. So this retrofit, we get to see, you know, how much Enterprise has grown and how um, the ship is actually far more capable than it was when when the series started out. So that was a cool part for me to see. The only other ship that we've ever seen be that quick, because um, you know, as soon as the Osarians come out of that cloaking field, they just hit them, and then they and then they stay with them. Travis just keeps up with them, um, and so I thought that the character development for the ship and seeing how far it's come from what we initially saw when it was launched was stellar. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Yeah, there's a lot of times where everybody focuses on the the human character, for lack of a better term. But the ship is its own character, right? We can talk all day long about the the Enterprise D. We can talk all day long about the Defiant. We can talk all day long about the Station. We can talk all day long about the, you know, the the Voyager. And even, you know existentially the the systems of which they both patrolled but the enterprise has that class about it you know the nx01 has that class about it one of the reasons why i liked it so much was, was because it was very tactile in a sense it wasn't so push button you had to push a lever you had to uh 
go down a set of stairs. It, it was basically based on a submarine, right? That's the idea behind it. It was based on a submarine. So that's what makes me think the NX-01 is, a, is one of my favorite ships, was it had that historic tactile uh, uh, ambiance to it. But we do see it take a beating. We see it take a beating in Minefield. We see it take a beating later on, too, uh, in E Squared and so on and so forth. But the, the it's a it's a truly classy ship. Let's put it that way. It's a truly classy ship. Yeah. It's a fifty seven Chevy <laughs> right there, boy. As was well, you know, as much as as much as we talk about each show being a reflection of the time in which it was, you know, filmed and which it's based, you know, the ships totally are that as well. You know, and uh the Enterprise D will always in my you know to me, is the ship I grew up with. So, of course, that's the, the classy lady, as it were. You know, that's the ship that she's she's sleek. She's so well-defined. She's comfortable. Like, everything about the Enterprise D is just, it's elegant, you know? And then the Dura um, sisters had to go and blow it up. I love about... You know, <laughs> let's say about Dura's <laughs> yeah. family. I think we can all right. agree on that. Uh, <laughs> which which, which, lead, which, I, I which will lead me to, to my next point. Deanna did a great job landing the saucer section. She did not crash that ship. Well, no, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. I disagree. Falling with style. <laughs> I with style every, every bit of the way. Um, but when it comes to the uh, the NX Enterprise, um, yeah, you definitely pick up on that uh, very close submarine vibe. You know, there's not a bunch of open viewport, viewports everywhere. You know, the, uh, the, the crew, the bridge crew, you you always can see them. They're all they always seem to be very much you know cramped together, and it works for them for what they're trying to do on the show. And um, in those moments when you know consoles are finally exploding and everything else, it does seem um, more intense and more real because you're not having to see like you're on one side and you only see one character, then you got to pan all the way around to see another character. You, they can do those wide shots and still get everybody, and it still has that close feel because the set itself is small you know so it it really helps with everything else that they were doing i, I loved how it was filmed and, and i love the way that the nx01 looks like um i know that it caught a lot of uh there was some backlash against the you know the upgrades after you know the attack and going back to earth and it's like oh well you know the the whole trope of the show is now ruined because it's got phasers and photon torpedoes but no i mean like it really does enhance the show and the ship like i just I, it makes me love the design even more, you know, showing that development. The, the only potential. thing missing is a secondary hull, which we'll get it get you know with season five. I know I'm going to piss some of you off with this, but this is the kind <laughs> of this is the kind of development that I would have liked to have seen with Discovery. You know, they spend a lot of time on character development. Um, they don't explain a lot of the things that you know from from regular torpedoes to photonic torpedoes. They don't explain you know Man. a lot of the transitions that we see and so i thought that this was one thing that enterprise did almost better than any other show you go back to voyager and that ship took an ungodly amount of damage from week to week and was fine the next week and all we can assume is you know they replicated new parts right um in enterprise including right. torpedoes yeah, they replicated yeah. torpedoes it, and shuttles and sh a lot of shuttles a lot and, of shuttles, and shuttles. <laughs> um but you know like in in enterprise we see a progression we see like you know a, a a linear uh, timeline of development, which I really appreciated from the writers. I love the minutia, you know? 
Well, think of it. Well, that- you know, Enterprise was a prequel. You know, it, it had to show some sort of lineage, some sort of progression to to uh, to get to what we knew of TNG, of, you know, even before that, of the 66 series. So it had, it had a duty to show progression to that, to what we know. Well, and, and also, even though the Enterprise is a prequel, let's not forget where it falls in the actual, uh, chronological order of, of the actual showcasing of Star Trek. You know, it came after Voyager. Yeah. And, you know, that was one of the main main complaints about Voyager is that you have this ship far from home, stranded, and yet somehow week after week it's in peak condition. Like, everything is still pristine and shiny and brand new, and they have an infinite number of torpedoes, an infinite number of ships, you know. Um, so, you know, having that feedback and then making this show, I think that the writers were very much aware of the fact that they needed to make sure they built in explanations about the progression of the technology and the rebuilding of things and, and stuff like that. And obviously it worked out well and people, you know, we appreciated it. And so, you know, it's one of those in world, in universe, uh, it makes a lot of sense, but then also production wise, we can see they actually learned from that mistake on Voyager to, to build in that explanation. That's a really good point, Perry. I mean, I think, yeah, I think that, that they definitely, we see the same writers, you know, from from those original Trek shows before the new age of Trek. And I think that they took the the feedback that they got and they implemented it to the best of their abilities on Enterprise. Well, it's like everything else. When you when you think you fail at something, how do you make Definitely. it better? And you, you go to the next level and this Enterprise being the last before you know, the last of the Star Trek franchises before Discovery, this is how they they wanted to correct and make better what they thought they had failed on in the past. No pun intended. But I think that's what I think that's what we're all trying to get at is because it's better because of what the mistakes they've learned yeah. and they've tried to correct. Every series has flunkers, let's face it. Code of Honor, I'm looking at you. <laughs> but every every series has flunkers. But what do you do? You have a chance to fail. You know, and, and this is, this four, four, you know, or three series from 80s up until the, the late 90s, they've seen where they failed. And they wanted to make better, and why not do it with a new show? In turn getting it chronologically and progressing the lore forward. Yeah. Definitely an ambitious, ambitious premise. I agree. Well, uh, tell me about some of your favorite moments from the episode. I've discussed mine and, and Jordan, you and I feel the same way. And that's the interrogation scene. That's the turning point. I think for, for a lot of us, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's the turning point. This is the start of there ain't no pussyfooting around. You know, uh, we're going to get the business. You know, the uh, the state of survival of humanity is at stake. And we need to know what we're up against. And that from that interrogation scene to the end where we see the computer pull up the database and you see the content, the concentration, the focus 
that Archer has on this database and nothing else yeah. knows that, you know, life is in the balance and Archer has to do what he's got to in order to save the universe. Yeah, I gotta say, yeah, same, same for me with the, the interrogation scene. Um, I also liked how when they were going through through all the stuff that the uh, pirates had, had collected, we got a, a, a Stumbolt shout out on that one. That's right. I doubt it was a self-sealing one since that, that technology, I think, was actually fairly new when DS9 came out for them. So I agree. Yeah, there were a couple interesting little tidbits about this episode, um, including including the stem bolts, but also um, this was the last episode of the series to air before it was renamed Star Trek Enterprise instead of yep. just Enterprise. Um and then back to, I mentioned, you know, the Osarians gear when they raided the ship. Those rifles that they used were uh, repainted Starfleet rifles from Star Trek First Contact, which I always, I, I got familiar vibes from their weapons. And I was wondering why, you know, that explains it. Um, I guess initially the, uh, the Osarians were supposed to be Orions in the first draft of the, of the episode. Which, you know, that would have been really interesting because, of course, we don't see Orions until season four. Um, yeah. So that would have been an interesting twist. And let's see here. Um, one fun fact, in about 23 minutes into the show, one of the numbers visible on the screen is 8675309. Hey. And for those of us who grew up in the 80s, know what song that's about and <laughs> oh, that's who it right. belongs to. So... I think my favorite scene is um, it's early on when they're first encountering the anomaly and we see, you know, Trip with Archer down in the in engineering and Trip is going through his, you know, classic mm -hmm. Trek no babble moment to explain why the uh, why the engine doesn't work. And he's just rattling off these words and everything. And I, I can't help but smile every time because, you know, the again, Trek no babble, it's it's infamous, you know, and um, I always think about it, I was like, who who does it better? Uh, Trip? Scotty or LaForge, you know, who who seems to give it to us with greater uh, confidence? Like, I definitely felt Tripp's frustration with trying to figure it out, but I was like, man, you're saying a bunch of things that I know that you know sound ridiculous. Like, how how is that working for you right now, you know? Um, uh, and, and it always makes me think of the one scene in Trek that I feel like they did their Trek No Babble the worst and that the words come off as sounding like everything sounds so fake. And then if you actually like, like take a, like do the whole closed caption and look up the things that they say, you're like, okay, there already exists a medical term for that. Like, why didn't you just use that medical term? And it's on next generation and it's uh season two. And it's where Picard has to go to the star base to have his Art. um, right. artificial yeah. heart replaced. The doctor who's doing the, the doing the procedure, the way he's talking, you're just like, dude, come on, you you got to do better. You're not you're not uh, selling this at all. And uh, one line in particular he delivers, he says, the heterocyclic declination, and I, I've never forgotten it in my life. Like ever since hearing it, I'm like, dude, that is nothing. And you say it's so weird, like it just it stands out forever in my mind. It's like the worst delivered line. In, in Trek Babble, Trek no Babble history. I think the best Trek no Babble 
has got to be season six, episode seven of TNG and Rascals, where Riker is explaining oh, to the Ferengi yeah. <laughs> what exactly has to be done. And he's just going on and on about it. And, you know, like it's nothing to him. And the Ferengi is just looking at him. Yeah. Like, oh, really? Oh, okay. Well, I, would, I always read that as he was intentionally making right. things yeah. up to. to yeah, we, we knew Ferengi. that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we knew that. But, I mean, the way he delivered it. Like he actually yeah, believed. Yeah, he it. did. You know, uh, <laughs> you're about expecting him to. You know, after he gets done saying that, pure fiction. We made it up. <laughs> Shout out to right. Beyond Belief. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to see the scripts before they actually put the techno babble in there, the techno babble in there, just to see where it says insert techno babble and who <laughs> inserts the techno babble. You know what I mean? Yeah, who sits around and comes up with the words that need to be said to get us from point A to B in this plot? Yeah. You know? Shout out to Dayton Ward. Uh, I follow him on social media. At one point, he was writing a book. I forgot which one it was, if it was Agents of Influence or not. And he was like, hey, Trek fans, I need help. What word do you think would fit into this sentence? Or can you give me something, whatever it was? And everybody's responding. It's like a list of Trek Mababble that's coming across. <laughs> It's amazing. It's it's its own language, yeah, it really. really. It's fun to pick out the pieces that you recognize or the pieces that you can extrapolate. You're like, okay, I know what. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, uh, they just so they referenced antimatter storage pods in this. Obviously, the warp core runs on antimatter, so you're inferring that you know these storage pods are what they what they replace when uh, whatever antimatter in the warp core runs out. Um, it's just fun to infer, um, you know, things that we know are, are real today. Uh, dark matter. We, we were just learning about, you know, dark matter. Well, some of us were just learning about dark matter in the, <laughs> the uh, you know, late nineties, early two thousands when Voyager, um, you know, talked when Voyager had that episode where Janeway takes the misfits out on the Delta flyer and they're, um, they learn a little bit about how, how scientists think dark matter you know, reacts with regular matter. Um, so I, I've always enjoyed that about every Star Trek, just taking things that we know and, um, and, and then Star Trek ex extrapolates and expands upon that. And a lot of times they're right. You know what I mean? Weirdly. So, you know, they predicted um, uh, cell phones, you know, they had, they were the first yeah. to have communicators. And, you know, last week when we were discussing um, the first, or I, I actually, I think it was, I think it was the first um, when we talked about Broken Bow and then the drone that he was flying around. This was 2001. Nobody even, I mean, some people knew what drones were. Um, and, you know, we obviously had those big old predator drones and things like that. But nobody had any notion of a of a consumer friendly, small, you know, drone. And uh, that's something else that they predicted. So I always enjoy seeing stuff like that. You know, and it's constant throughout the series, too, uh, throughout multiple of the series, Discovery being the latest one, that they've also explored a lot of science mm -hmm. in their in their episodes and uh, a lot of science to be proven. You know, uh, uh, the uh, the mushroom, the mushroom highway, right, uh, uh, to be uh, mycelial network. Yeah. Um, yeah, the mycelial network, you know, using. <laughs> I call so it the Mushroom Pike. Highway. So does Pike. Um, 
yeah, you're in good company. Yeah, I'm in the best company as far as that's concerned. Uh, but yeah, uh, Trek has that, and I said this, uh, and I said this before. I might have said this in my intro. Trek has the ability to take present day, not just issues, but present day science in in our aspect of talking in this. And bring it to the forefront for others to explore, for others to open their mind, much like the issues that they bring forth in all the series. This is something for them that they bring forth to for everybody to think about, inciting that utopian future that we all want. I agree. And Trek does this very well. It's a uniquely Trek phenomena that I think has only been replicated successfully in recent other, you know, I think about Annihilation or or things like that. Um, I think all the inspiration for all of that is is very much you can you can trace the lineage back to Star Trek and how they they portrayed those things on screen. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, my favorite, I, I'll tell you my favorite moment in the episode is when, <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 at the peak of the suspense where they're downloading the Zindi database. Hoshi says she's got 90%. Um, Archer says, good enough, Mr. Reed. And Reed fires two torpedoes at the, at the pirates, at the Saurian ship. And that thing just drops, drops and almost crashes into the sphere and explodes. <laughs> and they must have a hell of a helmsman mm. because he managed to regain, you know, um, attitude control at the very last second, which I thought was, was cool. Um, you know, it had me thinking, you know, did he mean to, he said, he said, take out his engines. Did you do the math on that? When you, when you fired those torpedoes and saw that they were going <laughs> to ram into the sphere, you know, were you hoping to destroy them all over the sphere there? Um, but that was my favorite moment of the episode. That's an interesting point that you bring up there about the pilot of the Osarian ship. I mean, just in the sense of, I don't think we ever really think about the other crews. You know, it's like once they disappear under their ships, it's the ship itself that is our enemy. But yeah, I mean, they had to have a heck of a pilot to be able to pull off being shot at, blasted into the side of this unknown alien sphere and scraping the way off of it before. I mean, ultimately, yeah, he fails, but still like... He was. He did do a spectacular job, or he or she did a spectacular job recovering um, before the, <laughs> their ultimate demise. Um, it was. It was a great scene to see, and uh, you know, and that's, it also does one of the the science fiction faux pas, which is we hear oh, yeah. the sound of the scrape yeah. of the metal, which we right. know there's no sound in space, so it's just like, where did you get that sound effect from? <laughs> you know, I agree. So yeah, they had a listening post on the uh, on the sphere there. Picked up the vibration and turned it into sound. See, there's always an oh, yeah. explanation. So from the from the inside, <laughs> yeah. from the inside, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, what we were hearing was what their sensors were detecting. You know, they transmit, they translate uh, raw data into things that the crew can perceive. You know, um, whether that's well, and that was that was one thing I I watched rewatched in a Discovery episode recently. Um, you know, they they deployed some sensors or whatever. And it's actually just a series of cameras that like twisted around and took a bunch of photos. Yeah. I would have loved to have seen that in enterprise. I think that that was kind of a missed opportunity. When we hear the ner the term sensors, 
Um, it's really ambiguous, but they're really just more advanced and sophisticated versions of what we have today. And so I thought that that was cool. Yeah, I agree. So let's see. Um, any final thoughts on this episode? Um, overall, I think it's a, a solid episode. We're definitely beginning to see the changes in, you know, ship and crew. Um, yes. Yeah, uh, getting more into the mystery of the Zindi and the uh, overarching mystery of of what's going on and why all these races are so tied together and so important, you know, like we, again, with the whole seeing the sphere and the inside of the sphere and understanding that, you know, uh, the sphere is what's giving off this gravimetric em in energy, which is distorting this area of, of space, which created the expanse, you know, we're finally getting the pieces of the puzzle. And um, it's one thing uh, about this episode and also about uh, Enterprise that I really um, respected. And it was the fact that they laid so many breadcrumbs throughout, especially, you know, especially with the start of the expanse arc, that if you pay attention, like they, they really give you a lot to work with, you know, without, um, you know, either bearing the lead or, you know, um, ruining the surprise, you know, because as we've pointed out, like there are so many different times along the way that we that they could have gone uh, down similar paths with storylines, like with the spheres could have been an easy tie into the Dyson spheres or something else, you know. Um, but yeah, it was it's it was great fun to follow along with. And I love that this episode drops a lot of clues about those things and um, gives you a lot to work with. Absolutely. Yeah, de definitely. And for me, the, you know, this this does a great job of continuing on from from the Zindi. You know, um, we get to see actually really how dangerous this section of space is, where the normally you know just merc mercantile you know, space, yeah, spacefaring races are turning to piracy because they have nothing left to do, really. Mm -hmm. I'll say it's data survival. That's what we're talking about right here. Uh, I think Perry talked about breadcrumbs. Mm -hmm. I think we talk about when Archer has to do what has to be done, we'll see that in damage. Yeah. What he does when he goes and pillages because what he felt was done to him was right. Why not have to do it there? But the stakes are a little bit more higher, right? He has to do what has to be done. So there's the instinct. There's the human instinct there with it. A great character development episode uh, for Archer and the crew. But all, it's a solid episode for sure. It's one of my favorites. Um, and I think I think the reason for that stems from not just the action, although that was, again, my favorite part, but um, the actors, the intensity that the actors brought to this episode and, and to the last episode, to the Zindi. Um, I thought that that was one of the reasons why I voted as, a, as you know, a strong season opener. But it really continued in this episode. I think a lot of that has to do with the actors' um, raw reactions to 9-11 and to you know, them being on set when they were told that this happened, the show being, you know, going into um, the production being halted essentially for a little bit. Um, I think this was very much they're They're at the top of their game here. Um, they're trying to represent something that's 
they're trying to represent their character as well. And they're trying to represent things that are bigger than themselves and the intensity that Scott Bakula brought to this episode, um, the intensity that, that, you know, uh, Anthony Montgomery brought to this episode. And he, again, yeah. you know, didn't have a lot to do, but he was, they, they were all on the same wavelength of, of determination, which I really liked. Um, so props to the actors for, for making this, uh, one of the most intense and suspenseful and um, climatic, you know, episodes that I've ever seen. You know, uh, we, we talk and Jordan, you talked about Archer and, and Scott Bakula and, and the reactions. It's one of the things, if you ever listen to any of the group uh, videos that they've done, interviews or whatever, Scott Bakula was the true leader of the, of the actors, of the crew, of the ensemble. And you see that all throughout the series. But most importantly, I think why it matters now is because of the impact of 9-11. Is, you know, I've mentioned this before, is that Archer is what the viewer sees. That's the character of Archer to me. And I think how Scott Bakula portrays this specifically in this season is absolutely well done. Couldn't agree more. I think Scott Bakula was just a um, a great and underrated choice for the role of Archer. I mean, I don't know how many other people they auditioned for that role, who was a close second, um, you know, but um, I, I just, I like him. And I think that he is a great fit. And I couldn't imagine another person um, in that role. And Bakula brings so much um, to it. And it's like, if you ever have a question of trying to, you know, sell a scene, it seems like it always got like an instant boost when he was in it. Like even the stuff like, you know, we see later on in other episodes, like when they, you know, when they have their Borg run in, I know there were some initial problems with that episode, but once Bacula is, is in the scene, it, it worked. Like I... I was invested in yeah. it more than I was with some of the other, uh, you know, other people, you know? Um, yeah. I just, I think he's a great actor. And uh, once again, this highlights that, you know, my, my overarching feeling of enterprise that it just was a bit ahead of its time. We weren't really ready to give the show what it needed to survive. And if it had gone on, you know, three, maybe even four more seasons, it would be a great show, and in large part due to Bakula and his work and contributions. And um, uh, I would love to see the character of Archer, still played by Bakula, of course, back in some kind of yes. uh, capacity. Uh, they can do some kind of time jump thing, and maybe he's, you know, recognizing the fact that he's older and he's doing some other role, but still plays an importance in some kind of temporal war of some kind i don't know but i would just love to see that character again i would love to see him work with it again and actually give that character a better ending than what we actually see in uh enterprise we we don't talk about <laughs> no. that ending. oh we, so, we don't talk about that that ending is not I, talked I've, about i've got an idea for 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 you know star trek archer or whatever basically west wing but in the star trek setting where archer is president of the Coalition yeah. of Clans. Yeah. The older Ooh. President Bartlett. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I think I yeah, I think a lot of the fans, uh, specifically Rob Chapman, if you're listening out there on Twitter, I know he's one that wants a West Wing type Star Trek show. Uh because though we see it in the books, 
it would be nice to, especially in the early books or the early years during Archer, um, I forgot the actual name of the novel, but it would be nice to see something like that. One more thing for the uh, for the Bacula bromance, uh, I will say that during an interview, he had said that when they brought him the role of Archer, the first thing he said was, Archer's going to get beat up. There is not going to be, I'm not going to sit here and stand and not get beat up. You will see wounds. You will see. So that translates to the character yeah. of Archer throughout the series. I, I'm thinking about all the implications of, of what you just said about a West Wing type, specifically with Archer as the president. Um, it reminds me a lot of like of Kennedy, of Camelot. I get those vibes. Um Kennedy was injured in a war preceding uh, his presidency. He was a war hero. Um, and, you know, Archer in the books, at least, um, he's not able to captain a ship anymore. He's not able to be on the front lines anymore because he's got neurological damage from a variety of different things. Um, really exploring how he deals with that during his presidency, seeing, a, you know, whether or not he makes time for a family Um and seeing him become explore aspects of his character that we were never able to explore uh, is something that I would really love to see on a, on a show. Yeah. And, and especially with how closely the writer's room is with the tie in novels, this would be a great opportunity for Keith R.A. DeCandido to get in because he wrote articles at the Federation and, and that's, that's right, right. We're right up in his wheelhouse. I agree. I think it'd be hugely successful and different than anything that Star Trek has done. I think they should, uh, I hope they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Bacula for America. I've heard everything from, uh, you know, they, you know, they, uh, wanted a West wing style to even an NCIS style. Yeah. Um, uh, Trek. I don't know how I feel about the NCIS one because I mean I don't like to think of rampant <laughs> murderers all over feder all over the Federation, but um, I would definitely be interested in seeing something about the um, the politic of of the Federation and how that works. So yeah, I w- I would be down. Yeah, for and that. if we are going to get a Star Trek NCIS, first we have to have a Star Trek Jack. Okay, I'm so glad that you said that. I'm so <laughs> glad. I, 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 I don't understand how you could like Star Trek and not like Jag or like Jag. You know what I mean? Like to me, yeah. they're so they're so similar. Um, they have. It's hard to define though. Well, we, like it really, it, it's hard for me to articulate why both of those shows hit a certain like wavelength for me. Um, you know, but my my nana used to record both of them for me. Like when I was a kid um, on VHS tapes. Uh, you know, so there's some sentiment, sentimentality for involved for me, but they very much are on the same wavelength for me. Yeah, like I said, I think Jag was a great yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, it was. And we know that Starfleet has it. We know they that do. Starfleet has a Jag core. We see mm-hmm. them multiple times. We and and, and and in in multiple iterations of Trek, you know, the original series has you know uh, Kirk is on trial a couple different times. We know infamously that Picard mm-hmm. was put on trial and and nearly court martialed, and, and, and often and we also see his defense yep. of Data as an individual with rights. You know, we see that um, Worf is brought up on charges on Deep Space Nine. You know, and has to go through a hearing as well. And even Janeway conducts a hearing of sorts for the other Q entity when he wants to con- uh, kill himself. And uh, and Tuvok serves as the interim, you know, you know, advocate in, in that 
standpoint. So, I mean, we know that there is precedent. We know they have law. We know that, you know, there is, again, a JAG core. So there's a lot already built into the universe for them to build Not off to of mention, to do a whole show. So that would be they're both that would be they cool. were both aired by CBS. So I this just goes to speak to the missed opportunities that CBS has always um, had. You know, really, I mean, they they really. Um, I, I know the enterprise was on UPN or whatever, but um, I mean, they really had the rights, and they now have the rights to be able to do some of this stuff. And I I really yeah. hope that they go in a different direction than just trying to. I don't know. These are some of my gripes about Discovery, so I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> well, yeah, I think. Well, you know, there's a there's a lot of Trek in production, so I think we're getting ready to see a lot of new facets of Trek. Now, whether that's one of them or not, you know, that's a whole other story. But we are getting ready to see um, a whole new age yeah. of Trek. Now, whether it's the new Golden Age, the new Renaissance of Trek, I don't know. But there's definitely a lot. And personally, even though I do enjoy Discovery. I really can't wait for Strange yeah, New Worlds with Pike. Like yeah, that, that whole crew it already won me over. I can't wait to see what they do. So, yeah. So next week we're going to be talking about um, the the episode Extinction. Um, thank you everyone for for listening. Make sure you to like and subscribe, and um, everybody everybody give your send off. <laughs> Live long and prosper. Optimism, listeners. Is that Galaxy Quest? <laughs> no, it's Fox. <laughs> well, I have my own of just, you know, don't be bitter, be better. I like that. Until we visit Fraggle Rock, keep shirts on. <laughs> the Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast, is produced and hosted by myself, Chris Hill, and Kyle West and is a part of the Holosuite Media Podcast Network. To keep up to date with all the news and updates from The Expanse, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at NX01Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at TheChrisHill, and Kyle on Twitter at KyleThomasWest. To join the Holosuite Media Community Discussion Group, simply type the Nexus into the Facebook search bar, and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep your shirts on. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer. List other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Sci-Fi Feminist, a feminism and pop culture podcast. Yes, uh, cosplaying as Lara Croft doesn't work, but that did spark my interest in her. And for my master's dissertation, I wrote about Rise of the Tomb Raider. And continuing into my current study, she's still the topic of research and investigation. So I feel like um, we're basically best friends or sisters. We are really close, <laughs> me and Laura. It feels like I have some personal relationship with her, which is why I'm really happy to share my research about Laura Croft at this point in this podcast. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Voyages, a Star Trek original, animated, and Kelvin Films podcast. Full honesty, I did find that the scene was seemingly long when they were driving with him and, and Scotty to get to the Enterprise when they were in their little capsule. I felt that that was a very long scene, driving around the whole Enterprise. But find yourself someone in life that looks at you the way Kirk looked at the Enterprise. I mean, that was a beautiful moment. And I absolutely adored when Spock came back onto the Enterprise 
just how everybody on the bridge, like Yuhura and Chekhov and everybody, they just kind of rallied around him. And it was a really warming moment just to see that original core group of people just celebrate him and happy to see him. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.